0: If you still have your hymnal nearby, grab it, which that should be everyone unless someone took their hymnal to their car, should still be close by. Grab your hymnal and turn to page 677, 671 rather, sorry, 671. bottom of the, cha- the page the pages the chapter that deals with God and the Holy Trinity our our chapter uh, this evening's chapter 9 in the in the workbook entitled God is perfect God is perfect I hope that again we'll be able to I guess I should speak for myself I hope that I will be able to uh, speak in such a way that allows us all to think and receive and and chew on particular truths. As I've said, sometimes uh, once I get started, I feel like I'm 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 rushing, and I, I have material to. Uh, I guess I should say the amount of material I have is. Uh, small enough, I have little material. I don't know how else to say that. I have a little material. We, so we have plenty of time is what I'm getting at. I'm going to try to speak slowly so that we can think and consider slowly. There, there are times when, when drinking from a fire hydrant can be helpful, and there are other times when it's good just to slow down and be able to think. And I know some of you are probably thinking... Um, yeah, I'd like to be able to do that all the time. Um, but this is one of those times, especially in these evening services, where we, we bring a Lord's Day to a close and consider who our God is specifically, that I, I'll, I hope to be able to speak a little more slowly and consider these things at length. God is perfect. Our confession says in paragraph 1 of chapter 2 there in the hymnal, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of Himself infinite in being and perfection. God is infinite in being and perfection. Now, typically when we use the term perfect, we have in mind whether or not something meets a standard. For example uh some of the tradesmen in here you, you might say, "I need a certain length of wire it It doesn't have to be perfect. A certain length of pipe doesn't have to be perfect. I learned that when I was helping Cody out a little bit you know because i'm I'm kind of like well you said, you know seven and three eighths or whatever so I'm, he's like, it doesn't have to be perfect. like get on with it um, doesn't have to be perfect. A carpenter might say, you know um." Fifty-seven and three-eighths, three but he might say a heavy three-eighths or a light three-eighths. Now, he's not saying sixteenths or thirty-seconds. What he's saying is, in that neighborhood somewhere. It doesn't have to be perfect. We, we've all heard that phrase. You, you ladies, when you're you're putting together a recipe, or maybe you're teaching your daughters how to do recipes in the kitchen, you, you might say something like, Two-thirds of a cup, and you know, this is the way my mind thinks. I'm getting the two-thirds cup out, I'm sprinkling it, I'm patting it down, I'm shaving off the top. When you, you, you've done it for a while, you say, it doesn't have to be perfect, scoop out the, you know, throw it in there. Um, it doesn't have to be perfect. Or, as you deal with lost people, or maybe the evangelist on the street might be dealing with an unconverted man, and the unconverted man might bow up and they might say, well, nobody's perfect what he means is with regard to a moral standard, nobody meets that standard to perfection. Usually when we use the term perfect, that's what we mean. We mean that there is a standard, 57 and 3 16 or two-thirds of a cup, or, or absolute moral righteousness, and whatever is perfect meets that standard, and there's no variance between the standard and, and, and what is meeting it. There's, there's no heavy 3 8s or light three-eighths. It's just on the line. That's what we typically think of. Or when it comes to moral perfection, it meets the standard absolutely and nowhere is there any room for wavering. That's usually how we use the term perfect. But that's, that is not the way that the Bible usually uses the term perfect. And speaking of God, we say that God is perfect. And if I say that, you might take me to mean that first meaning. What you're saying is that God is morally upright, that everything that God does is right, and there's nothing wrong with it in a moral sense. Those statements are true, and those are a part of His perfection, but that doesn't exhaust the meaning of the word perfect in Scripture you don't have to turn here but one passage that i think is helpful is matthew 5:48 where our lord says you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect now there we have it stated clearly your heavenly father is perfect right and th- that's a true statement but then but he also says you also must be perfect well how do we make sense of that well some believe, and I, I've taught this even though I, I've, I've changed my view on this, but some believe that what, what Christ is saying there is you need to look outside of yourself for a perfection or a righteousness that you don't have. I think in, in, in the context of what our Lord is saying, He's saying something different. He's talking about the, using the definition of this word perfect, which is actually something more akin to complete. Complete. That that word perfect there in in Matthew 5.48 is teleos, or a form of the word telos, which means having reached its end. The telos is the end. Something is finished or mature or complete. That's what the word telos means, the completion. Perfect here is synonymous with the term complete. Our Lord is saying you must be complete. Your heavenly Father is complete. You must be complete if you're going to be His children. If you go back through the Sermon on the Mount, what's He saying? You've heard that it was said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say unto you, whoever looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not just the external. It's the internal. The the children of the kingdom have have a, a whole man morality about them. Yes, given by God, worked in them by the Holy Spirit... That's more than the external. It's also the internal. It's the heart and the actions. The the complete package, so to speak. So when we say that God is perfect, that's what we're saying. He is complete in every conceivable way. (laughs) Negatively, this is to say, He has no lack in His being. No lack. Now we could go out and say He has no lack with regard to you know, things uh, outside of Himself, but He doesn't need those things. In His being, there is no lack in God. Now, in the workbook, it opens by saying this, the Scriptures teach us that God is perfect and lacks nothing in His person or works. See there, the the word perfect is, is explained as lacking nothing. He doesn't say the scriptures teach us that God is perfect and morally upright and and never sins. That would be the righteousness of God. No, His his perfection means He lacks nothing. He's complete. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology says that God's absolute perfection is the infinity of the divine being considered in itself. Infinity means free from all limitations. So to say that God is perfect is to say He's free from all limitations, almost synonymous with infinitude. Perfection means there's no limit to God in any way. In other words, to say that God is perfect is not to say that He meets the standard and there's no variation between Him and the standard, or that He hits the mark. He's perfect. He, he hits the mark when none of us hit the mark. That, that's not what we're saying. To say that God is perfect is to say that there, with regard to God, there is no mark. There is no standard or, or limitation which God has met. We see God meet up to the standard and we say, Ah, oh, he's, he's perfect. He met this. No, no. with God there is none of that. He is in Himself considered in His own being without standard, without limit, without bounds. He is in Himself perfect. Perfection and perfect. He is the standard of completion. God is in himself the mark of completion or the standard, lacking nothing, no, no limit or bound to any part of God or any any attribute of God at all. This is why we confess that God is infinite in being and perfection. His being is infinite. His perfection is infinite. There's no bounds to God's perfection. No finitude to God's perfection. No limit to God's perfection. God's own infinitude sets the boundary of His perfection. Now, infinitude means no boundary. Try to imagine an ocean with no bottom and no shore and no surface. Boundless, endless, depthless. How deep is it? We don't use those terms here. There's no bottom. There's no top. Boundless. That's what we're saying. There's no bottom. There's no shore. There's no surface to God's being. He's infinite. And being infinite, He lacks nothing. Or lacking nothing, He's perfect. He's complete in Himself. And His perfection pervades all of His other attributes. For example, when we say that God is omniscient, we're saying He's perfect in knowledge. There's nothing that can be known that God doesn't know. He's perfect in knowledge. When we say that God is omnipresent, we're saying He's perfect with regard to the terminology of presence or location or space. To say that God is eternal is to say that He's perfect with respect to time. There was never a time when He wasn't. There will never be a time when He's not. He's he's complete. You'll never find a a, a second or a moment in the span of what we might call history or if we can even think of eternity in terms of a span where God is not. He, He doesn't... He's perfect. When we say that God is just, we say He's perfect in the way that He deals with sin and righteousness. When we say that God is good, we're saying He's perfect in His dispensation of ordering all things. There's no lack in God. Nothing can be added to or taken away from God's knowledge. As, as, as we say, God is uneducated. He's never learned anything. He never came along and discovered a fact. Uh, we, we often imagine God's going God's to gonna see you doing that. Well, God already knew. God, God knew from eternity the things that you're doing, thinking, saying Nothing can be increased or diminished of God's presence in every place. Now, I've heard that it's not appropriate to say that God is immobile, but God is not here one minute and there, then there and next, so that now He's not there. No, He's, there's, He's all places. He's perfect in that regard. God cannot be considered any older now than He was in the beginning or younger now than He will be in a million years. He's perfect with regard to time. No judgment of God toward any sin could be any more or less suitable to the crime. There's some who say, ah, oh, eternity? Everlasting torment for 70 or 80 years of sin? It seems a little much. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. His justice is perfect. No reward of God for any goodness could be any more or less suitable to what it was God could not have done or do anything he's ever done in any better or worse uh, ev- any better or worse than it has been or will be. It's perfect. He is perfect in his being and His works. Everything is absolutely perfect. And the note goes on to say there is no possibility of a defect in God. He's perfect. And some of the implications that are noted there. This assures us that God will not change. He can't become better than He is. He's already perfect, and that would assume that right before He became better, He was not perfect. He wasn't God, and then He became God. Or He cannot become less, because then He would cease to be God, cease to be perfect. He will not change. And it also assures us that God is worthy of our absolute trust, which we'll come back to at the end. God is perfect. Now this chapter, chapter 9 is broken up into two sections, the perfection of or the perfection of God's works and then the perfection of God's will. Now we're only going to focus on the perfection of God's works this evening. So the, the main heading is the works of God are perfect. God is perfect in every aspect of his character. The works of God, being an extension of His character, are also perfect. God's works are perfect. And then in this section, there are two main headings. His general works, we might call them works of general revelation, and then His special works, or or works of salvation. These are perfect. So first, the general works of God, the the work of God in creation, the work of God in providence, the work of God in governing the world, and all of this... God is perfect. Nothing could be added to it to make it any better. Nothing could be taken away from it to make it better or worse. All that God has done, is doing, and ever will do, as far as His general works, is absolutely perfect. And then we have some Scripture references to show this. The first one is Deuteronomy 32. So let's turn there together. Deuteronomy 32. Three and four. We looked at verse three last week. Deuteronomy two, three and four. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Here, God's work is perfect. Nothing can be added to it to make it any better. You can't take anything away from it to make it better or worse. All of His ways are just. There's no no fault in any of God's ways, there's, there, there's no instance where somebody might come along and say, well, if He would have done it this way, it would have been better. Or, if only He hadn't done this part, well then I could see it being perfect. But He did, and so it's imperfect. No, God's work and God's ways are perfect. Anytime we feel like we found a fault in any of God's works... All we have done is revealed an imperfection in our thinking, and this might be a helpful, uh, a helpful study tip. As you're reading scripture, you come typically through a narrative. You might see something happen, and you might think to yourself, "If I were God, I don't know why. I don't think I would have done it that way. That doesn't seem like the best thing that could have happened there." Okay, number one, you're revealing the imperfection of your thinking, but number two, that might be a good place for you to stop and ask, why has God done it this way? Let me try to think about what's happening here. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. He's done something here that I'm having trouble with. So let me stop and settle and think. God, why is it this way? Why did it have to be like this? It will help us to think through God's ways. And, and, And if nothing else, you might get to the end of it and say, God's ways are... Higher than my ways. His ways are mysterious. I don't understand. The next text is Psalm 1830. Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God... His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. And then he gives a comment about this word blameless. It comes from the Hebrew word tamim, which may also be translated as perfect. It's important to note that there is a direct relationship between God's character, His works, and His word. Because God's character is perfect, His ways and word are also perfect. That word tamim that's translated blameless here is the same word that was used in Deuteronomy 32, translated perfect, blameless. God's way is blameless, without blame, without fault. At the same time, His word is also without fault. It's been tried. It's been proven. Tested. it. Everybody's tried. People have been trying for generations to find fault. They can't. It's without fault. An amazing thing about God's word, as you read it, notice that nothing is ever overstated, nothing is ever understated, nothing is redundant. You might think it is, but it's not. You might. I, I'm. I'm reading. I'm finishing up Second Chronicles, and sometimes I think, didn't I just read this? But there's a reason. There's a reason why He gives these these things to us again. Isn't it amazing that some things which are said in Scripture just a few times, they pierce us. It's enough. There it says it. And then there are some things that are said repeatedly, and yet we come back to them again and again and again. It's not redundant. Nothing understated. Nothing under, overstated. Absolutely perfect is God's Word. The next passage is Ecclesiastes 3.14. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3.14 I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. Again, this is the definition of perfection. Perfection. The completeness of, or perfection of God's work should lead us to fear or reverence Him. There are few things that draw a more stark contrast between us and God than this. Everything that God does is perfect. Everything that God does remains. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it to make it any better or any worse. Man's works are the complete opposite. None of our works remain. None of our works are perfect we can always point out something that we could have done to make it better. We're often embarrassed at what we could have omitted. I did it this way, but looking back, I probably should have done it that way. We, can, we always do that. We're not, uh, Many of us in a constant state of, I should have done it this way, and I could have done it that way, and I wish I could think of this better, and I wish I would know more. Well, God is perfect. There's none of that with God. And this contrast should cause us, or at least add, a layer of the fear of God in us. We are dealing with a God who's completely unlike us in all that He does. All the works of God are perfect. There is no shortcoming, no lack, no deficiency in anything that God has ever done. And again, whenever we begin to think that we have found a defect in a work of God, whether creation or providence or His Word, we have to return to what we confess to be true. This is why it's so important To confess bedrock truths. God is perfect. End of discussion. I think I found an imperfection or a problem. Nope, you didn't. What do you confess? God's perfect. All right, work from there. Something in you is imperfect, and you're not seeing it rightly, you're not working with it rightly. If I'm failing to see the perfection, then my heart and my mind need to change to fit what God's word teaches. That goes for God's prescriptions in life and the way that we live. There are things that we see God's word prescribes, but our culture prescribes something different. And we buy into that. And we say, "Well, I can see how that might actually work out better in for the short term or in this whether In this way or that way, there are pros and cons in the way that they're saying. And with God's Word, I just don't see how it could work out. God's ways and works are perfect. Start from there. And do what you have to do to conform. Start there. Then we come to the second category, the special works of God. Or we could say more specifically the singular work of God in salvation. God is perfect in His saving work. It's perfect in plan, purpose, execution, and extent. Number two, the note says, God works not only in His creation, but also in His people. Every Christian is a work of God. Then we have the first text is Ephesians 2. Let's turn there together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now as we open this up, just keep in mind what we've already seen about God and His works. God is perfect, His work is perfect. All right, now in this text, we we meet first the objects of God's work. We are His workmanship, a reference to the saints of God. Now, this is true of His general work in, in actually creating us. His work is perfect, but the context here is the special work of salvation. You say, how do you know that? Well, notice the union that's addressed here in, in God's work. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's the language of union with Christ by His Spirit. Paul is saying, we, the saints of God, as saints in union with Christ remember, which is the very essence of salvation itself, in, viewed that way, from that angle, we are the workmanship of God. We considered precisely as the subjects of God's salvation are the work of God. So He created us at first, but He recreates us in salvation. That, that's His work. The work of God in salvation is a perfect Work. God's perfect. All of His works are perfect. We are His workmanship. The work of God in salvation is a work of God, therefore it is perfect. Now you might say, well, well, yeah, but do we not need to be sanctified? Yeah, that's a part of His work. But won't we need to be glorified at some point to dwell forever in His presence? Yes, that's a part of His work too. It's a perfect work. Having been born again and brought into union with Christ, we have been placed on the assembly line of the saving work of God, which will in the end prove to be a perfect work when, when we are able to look back, we will be able to see it was a perfect work just as it was just as it happened in in life as we watch things unfold, very often we can critique and we would analyze our uh, our Input and in our, our living, what we bring to the table. We, I wish I would have done this better. I wish I would have done that better, better. But when we look back, we will see God's work was perfect. The way that He did it ended up bringing Him the most glory. He did it in a way that was the very best way. Some of us would like to say, I, th- there are times when we say, I wish I could be sanctified in a different way. I've seen brothers and sisters sanctified. I want to be sanctified like they're being sanctified. That's not the way God works. The The way He's doing it is perfect. And notice the product of God's work here. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. God's work in us is not meant to stop in us, but is meant to be worked out of us in deeds or good works. So God's perfect work encompasses that which He does in us and through us and out of us. And then the historical foundation of God's work, it says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These works which we perform are part of the eternal decree and plan of God. And again, it's hard to... Well, it's impossible. We can't see the whole thing. But when when we are able to understand, we will see that it is perfect. Now we confess by faith it's a perfect work. Someday we will see with our eyes, it was a perfect work. The perfect work of salvation begins in eternity. It comes to pass in time beginning with the new birth. It issues forth an ongoing sanctification and a manifestation of good works which glorify God in the world, declare God to others, strengthen our assurance of His work in us. All of this is a part of God's work and it's perfect. The next passage is Philippians 2.13 so we can turn there Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure First notice the one working it is God Who is at work? What do we know about God's work? It's perfect. Everything He does is perfect. So God's at work doing a perfect work. What is the sphere of His work? It is God who is at work in you. Christian, in you, God is working. The perfect God whose work is perfect is at work in each of you, brothers and sisters. Number three, the product of His work, to will and to work for His good pleasure... So the perfect God is doing a perfect work in each saint causing us to will and to do or we could say causing us to will and thus to do according to His good pleasure or I think we could even say His perfect pleasure. God is at work. One of the implications of this, this truth is this. Where... Where God's Spirit is producing a willing and a working in you, God's part of it is perfect. It's a a perfect work. He doesn't do anything imperfectly. Now, your, your compliance with it is going to be imperfect. Your contributions and the execution of the work and the will are going to be imperfect. But what God has done is perfect. So we never need to be afraid of or fear the leading and guiding and instruction of the Holy Spirit. We we need to make sure that that's what it is, but we don't have to be afraid of it. We never need to doubt God or His intentions or what might become the the fruit of His work. No, it's perfect. Everything He leads and instructs and guides in is perfect. A lot of times we see the clear instruction of God's Word. We'll we'll see it, plain as day. And and what do we confess? It's perfect. What God says to do is perfect. We might even become convicted and convinced. I need to change. I'm not doing what God's Word says. His His way and will is perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm in the fault. I need to change. That that convicting and, and convincing work of the Holy Spirit, that's perfect. And yet... We doubt and fear. We begin to think, oh, oh, what will happen if I do what God has commanded me to do? We, we, we don't know the, the other end of the, of the story, the end of the, the story. We, we don't know what might happen and we begin to doubt and begin to fear. But God's ways are perfect. God's ways are blameless. Nothing that God has said or instructed is going to, to lead us down a path where we look back and say, man, I really wish I hadn't have done that. God, you really got me in a mess here. No, never. Never. Again, we will find fault in our execution. Usually the fault is, I wish I would have acted sooner. I wish I would have acted more quickly. I wish I would have been more tender and receptive to the work of the Spirit. But you'll never find a blemish in God's work. His instruction or His His leading and guidance, you'll never find fault in it. The next passage is Philippians 1.6. So just a, a page back. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So here we have a reference to the work begun, he who began a good work in you, which we could say if it's, if it's personal salvation, that would be the regenerating work of the Spirit there in Philippi and establishing the church among the saints there. We saw that happening... In, in Philippians 2 and in Ephesians. The work has been begun, but the work will also be perfected. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Or some of you might have, bring it through to completion. That's, this is a form of the word telos. He will bring it to its intended purpose. It will be complete. He'll bring the work in you to the point where nothing needs to be added or subtracted to make it better and the worker here again is God. He began the work, he'll complete the work. The work will be perfected because the perfect God will perfect it. He can do no other for all his works are perfect. The rock, his works are perfect. He cannot. Did you know there's some things God cannot do? Children, did you know that there's some things God can't do? God cannot begin a work and then leave it half finished. He can't do it. God can't not finish the work. He's bound by His character. He is constrained by His own perfection that whatever He begins, He must bring it through to completion. There there is no leaving off in God. Of all the works of God... The work of God in salvation is the most glorious. And of all God's works, all of God's works are perfect because God is perfect. And so the work of God in you, in your salvation, is the most glorious of all God's perfect works and must, for God's namesake, be perfected. We could say God's perfection is at stake. Think of all that God has done. All of His works are perfect and complete. Now, are you going to be the first of God's works that was left unperfected? Everything else, and then you came along and God left off the work. And we say, oh, we've got to change the whole thing. Now we've found an imperfection. No. God's perfection is at stake. His glorious grace is at stake. We could say His very name is at stake in the perfecting of your salvation, of bringing it through to its completed goal God's general work is saving work and then we come lastly to our response what should we do if this is the case the application the note says uh, under number three the God of all creation is working in the life of every Christian his work is perfect and will be accomplished without fail this truth goes beyond what the human mind can comprehend the perfect God is doing a perfect work in us to make us perfect. And then there are three passages that help us know how we ought to live in light of this. The first one is Psalm 92.4. We can turn there together. Psalm 92.4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. So there we have a reference to God's works. What do we know about God's works? They're perfect. Here the the saint looks at the works of God, the things that God has done, he says, It makes me glad. You never see a psalm that says, You've made me really disappointed by the things you've done, Lord. (laughs) Never see that. You've made me glad. Now, some of you are probably getting tired of hearing this. What should we do? Sing. I will sing for joy. Sing for joy at the works of your hands. I'll say it. I I, I teach it in my house. I say it here many times. Christian people are singers. We're singing people. Might not all be the greatest singers, but we're singers nonetheless. Why? Because we have something to sing about. The works of God's hands, we can see the perfection in them. The unbelieving world, they look at the things that are happening, and they all they can do is find fault. They want to. Well, if God is so good, why this? And if God, why did He do this? And why is it? They they think they can they can critique and and nitpick all the things that God has done. Where the believer comes along, and they say, "Isn't not it, it perfect? Everything that He's done, hasn't it been so wonderful?" We sing. The next is Psalm 107, one hundred seven twenty two. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His works with joyful singing. What do we do? In light of God's perfection and God's work everywhere, God's work in us and outside of us, Well, we give thanks? Give thanksgiving to God. Tell of His works and then tell of His works with singing. Is there anybody else that you can speak of in this way? Any anyone else that you could walk up you, you see in, in general conversation? Is there anybody else that you could begin to speak of and say, you know what, everything he's ever done is perfect. I can't find fault in any of it. Every bit of it is just perfect. You notice this? Perfect. See how he does that? It's perfect. Nobody else. Right. Any any at any point at any time any conversation you can bring up a work of God and you can say it's perfect. Yeah. Tell of his works with joyful singing. And then Philippians 2.12 and 13 is the last reference. Philippians 2.12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. There again there's the reference to God's working. What do we know about God's works? It's perfect. Why? Because God is Himself perfect. So God's work is perfect. God's working in you. And therefore we are to obey His commandments. Obey His commandments. The the perfection of God or the completeness of God or the perfection of God's works, these are never an excuse for us to be disobedient. Oh, I don't have to obey because God's going God's to gonna do what He's going to do. You know, he's, he's perfect. He's got it figured out. No, His perfection is is the reason why you ought to obey. And you have no excuse not to obey. Obey His commandments. And the note says here, As believers, we are not to work for our salvation, but we are to work out our salvation. We are to live out our Christian lives with a biblical reverence and trust in God. And the word trembling possibly denotes both the seriousness of the Christian life and the need for humility that leads us to distrust our own power and wisdom and live in dependence upon God. Work outward out the salvation that God is working in, in fear and trembling. Self-distrust, humility, understanding I I can't do this. God has commanded me to do something that I can't do on my own. And yet I I am am compelled and propelled by His work to act. And so therefore, I work out with my salvation with fear and also trembling. That's the idea. In conclusion, everything we learn about God... We see here, it keeps bringing us back to these same things. What, if God is, is what the Scriptures say that He is, what's the response? We worship Him, we sing to Him, and we obey Him. Everything comes back to that. But remember, God is perfect. You should worship Him. Give Him all of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your songs... Sing every moment of the day. Whistle, whatever it is. Tap your foot, whatever. All, all Every moment of the day. Give Him every footstep. Give Him every breath. Give Him every moment. Pour out your life to Him. And then, when you have finished, remember, you have given Him nothing. Nothing. He is no better because you did that. Because you worshiped. And He would be no worse off. He is no worse off should you refuse to worship Him. Because He's perfect. He's complete. He doesn't need our worship. He's not asking us to worship so that He can grow in power. No, He's perfect. George Swinnick, I brought this book up here. If you're interested in a a book on the, the attributes of God, this is one that's back there called The Incomparableness of God. It's it's literally just a book on God's attributes, but all of them from the the angle of God is is incomparable. So incomparable in perfection, incomparable in mercy, incomparable in grace. On on down the line. That's the way he goes about it. But here's a quote from his chapter on on or his section on the perfection of God. He says, Quote, what would God get? If He should make millions of worlds to laud and magnify Him. Or what would God lose if there were no world, no creature at all? He has given to all whatever they are or have, but none ever gave to Him. They who give Him their love and fear and trust and names and estates give nothing to Him. Nothing. You say, "How is that?" Well, because he's perfect. He's complete. You can't give him anything. Now, some people would say, "I don't like that." I would. Some people would rather have a God, lowercase G, a God who is moved and affected and changed and increased and sort of swelled with power as the more we worship his, his power level goes up, and and the more we do for him, the bigger he gets. Some people kind of like that. They want to be the one affecting him and and well the problem was with that is that would make you god if you can give him something to increase him that makes you god and what happens if you happen to be in need and what you need has not yet been given to god where are you going to go you got nowhere else to turn there's ultimately no safety and no security and no strength in a God like that, that that we could give anything to over against what the Scripture says at the beginning. The rock. Our God is perfect. A rock. He already has all and is all. He's completely, perfectly God. And that's a God you can trust in with everything. Any and every need Concern, worry, fear, every one of them. You go to Him because He's complete. He's perfect. He has all we need. Let's stand and sing hymn number 27 together and we'll be dismissed.